The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, good morning, Heritage. He is risen. Hallelujah. So very glad you chose to worship with us this morning on this Resurrection Sunday. How amazing that we can gather together as saints and seekers alike. We can sit under the proclamation of the Word of God. We can fix our eyes on the risen Christ and and occupy our minds with the reality of the resurrection lived out in our lives day in and day out. What a privilege. Amen? So my wife bought me a new shirt for Easter. I was informed today that this is not in fact pink. It is salmon. I have a salmon-colored shirt for Easter. feel very confident about that. Hey, would you join me in a word of prayer as we ask the Lord to bless our time together? Oh, Father, we're so grateful for the privilege you give us on this Easter Sunday to gather in this space. God, to lift up our voices and our hearts and our minds and our thoughts to you. God, I'm mindful of the men and women here today who know and love you and have, and have put their trust in you and they are here to exalt you, to, to lift you up, to magnify you, to make much of you as they worship you with the whole of who they are. And God, I'm also mindful of the men and women you've gathered in this place today who are, who are seeking the truth of Jesus. They want to know who this man was and what it is he has done that has changed the world. I pray, God, that your spirit would, would move in all hearts today. God, that you would remove distraction, that we would exalt you, and you would, God, remove lies, that we would trust in the truth of the gospel. Meet us in this place. Be glorified in this place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to introduce you to a word. Maybe you've heard this word before. Maybe you haven't. It's the word galamophry. The word galamophry, it was introduced to me many years ago by a college professor. It simply means a confused jumble. And we live in a world of Gollumophrey. In fact, if I can just confess for a few moments, I walked into the sanctuary today and I noticed the TVs weren't working and so I was asking questions, why aren't the TVs working? And, and it was very, very frustrating to me. And I walked back behind the, 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 the bleachers back there and I was frustrated, if I'm honest. I was angry. I was like, why? Of all Sundays for us to not have lyrics for songs on Easter Sunday and I was steaming back and forth and I felt the gentle hand on my back and it was my son. And he prayed for me. He's like, Dad, can I pray for you? It's a big Sunday. This is the Sunday we, 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 we recognize the, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Can I pray for you, Dad? And he prayed that God would remove the distractions, the gullum offering from my mind. With clarity, I would proclaim the risen Christ. We live in a world of gullum offering confused jumble, a melody of things. There's thousands of voices. And among a thousand voices, how do we hear the one voice? There's a thousand doors. And among the thousand doors, how do we know which is the one door? There's a thousand people claiming their own truth. How do we find the one truth? We live in the midst of Gollumoffrey. We've got cable news and streaming services and the internet and social media and, and so much noise. It's as if we're playing baseball, trying to play catch, but as one ball is thrown, a thousand balls are thrown all at once and we're trying to figure out which is the one ball that we should catch. We live over busy lives. And, and busyness and multitasking is a byproduct of Gollumoffrey. I read this week that Corey Ten Boom, the, the famous concentration camp survivor, once said that if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. 
There's truth in that. Both sin and busyness have the exact same effect. They cut off your connection to God, to other people, and even to your own soul. And then we multitask because with a thousand doors and a thousand voices and a thousand truths, there's a thousand things to do. I read this week that multitasking is the the drive to be more than we are, to control more than we do, to extend our power and our effectiveness. Such practice yields a divided self with full attention given to nothing. Gallimaufry. With divided minds, divided hearts, divided ears, could it be that we run the risk of paying attention to the wrong things? Our divided attention leaves very little brain and heart space to focus on the things that truly matter. Did you guys know it's Resurrection Sunday? He is risen. That's right. And if this is true, think about this. If this is true, there is no other truth that we need to worry ourselves with. If God really did become a human being in Jesus Christ, if creator God became part of his own creation, if, if he entered space and time and revealed himself through humanity, if this is true, if Jesus really did live and minister on planet earth, if he, if he performed miracles, if he healed the sick, if he gave sight to the blind, if he cleansed the leper, if he raised the dead to life, if he proclaimed a heavenly kingdom, if he really did go to the cross as a sinless, spotless sacrifice in your place and in my place, if he did really die in our place, if Jesus really did come back to, God, back to life, is there anything else that we need to listen to? If he really did reveal the power of God through his resurrection, if he validated the truthfulness of his message through the resurrection, if he defeated death and sin for all who believe, should anything else in all the world threaten to draw our attention and our devotion away from that truth? Oh, let's put the Golomophry aside this morning, amen? How gracious of our God in this moment to allow you and me to gather in this place, to gather together one another, to, to refocus our hearts and our minds on this amazing truth and the implication of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our lives. We get to focus on what does this mean? It's not just something we say. It's not just a holiday in the spring. It's not just a reason for us to gather and have a meal. There is a, there is a profound, world-changing implication that we draw from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we pause to, to consider that today. We step away from the jumbled mess, the golem offering, the many voices. For the next few minutes, you and I get to shut off all other inputs to our hearts, to our minds, and to our ears. Because if true, there is nothing more important than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing. So let us listen. Let us open our hearts to the, the message of the resurrection. Let us consider the truth of the resurrection. If you brought a Bible, would you please turn with me to Matthew 28. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's what we call a gospel. It is a narrative that tells us of the birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew was the author of the book of Matthew. He was an apostle of Jesus. This is the story of Jesus of Nazareth. He was this long-anticipated Messiah in the first century, the Jewish Messiah who brought the kingdom of God to earth. He is the prophesied fulfillment of God's promises to the people of God. Last Sunday, we gathered to celebrate Palm Sunday, the, the Sunday when Jesus, the Messiah, this promised deliverer that had been promised from the beginning of time, he came into the city of Jerusalem to, to shouts of acclamation, to the waving of palm branches. He was the king, though people didn't understand what kind of king he really was. 
On Thursday, Monday, Thursday, the church recognizes the institution of the Lord's Supper as Jesus gathered with his disciples on that final evening before he was betrayed. And on Good Friday, many of you gathered with us as we focused on the cross of Christ that as a sinless, spotless sacrifice, the Son of God went to the cross on our behalf. The wrath of God was poured out upon him for our sin. And today we gather to read the text. To, did, you guys, did, you, did you guys know that, how the story ends? It's a page turner, man. You get to chapter 28 and he's alive. What? Who knew? We get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Let's read the first 10 verses of Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And he said, Come and see the place where, they, where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them, and he said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. That's the story in the Gospel of Matthew of the resurrection of Jesus. Vivid language in this depiction. We see, we see the appearing of the angel as lightning. We see his clothing as white as snow. We see earthquakes. We see, we see the, the guards trembling as dead men. It's this, it's this ten verses just rife with rich, vivid language. A beautiful depiction of the morning that Christ rose from the dead. And we see... Several distinctive responses to the, the empty tomb. Real quickly, I want to just kind of draw our attention to some of these responses. We see the guards, right? The guards are, are gripped with fear, and then we see them go into full denial. Verse 4 tells us, for, for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Can you imagine what it was like for these guards, these Roman guards over the last several days, if you're familiar with the gospel story? This was the time of year when Jews from all over the region would travel, would pilgrimage to Jerusalem up the mountain for this holy holiday of Passover. Josephus tells us that there would be upwards of two million Jews in the city of Jerusalem at this time. So it was bustling with hordes and hordes of pilgrims. And so there was the Roman occupation and Pontius Pilate. They were very much concerned with, with quelling any temptation for the people to rise up and create a problem for Rome. And so these guards were dispatched to be the front row of this, of this distilling of the rising. And imagine what these men, these soldiers may have seen over the last several days. They saw the millions of worshipers. They saw this crazy horde of people worshiping Jesus as he walked into the, as he rode the donkey into the city a week earlier. And here, they, a few days prior, they saw that same group of people shouting, crucify him. They saw Jesus nailed to a cross uh, among two other thieves or two other rebels. They, 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 they saw the sky turn black when Christ was dying. They felt the earth shake. They heard Jesus whisper his last breath. The earth shook so much that, that, that tombs revealed the saints came walking out of tombs. The, the, the curtain of the temple was torn. It was an insane experience. Darkened sky and all. And they saw Jesus laid in the borrowed man's grave. And here they are after guarding the tomb for, for three days. And 
And now the earth shakes again. There's an appearance of an angel. I just can't imagine what these men had gone through. Whatever it was, they recognized this was much bigger than they were. They knew they were experiencing something profound, something supernatural. And we read later on in in this chapter, verses 11 through 15, that when they went back to the religious authorities, the elders and the chief priests, they concocted a plan to, to, to say that the the, the disciples came and stole the body of Jesus. They took money as payment so they wouldn't have to be held accountable to failing at their duty of guarding the tomb. So we see full-on denial in the face of the resurrection. And you also see, we see the disciples sort of in, in Matthew's gospel. They're mentioned, but we don't really see them in Matthew's gospel, his account of the resurrection. We see them really overcome with disillusionment, don't we? And as you know the story of Jesus, these were disciples who were deeply saddened by the death of Jesus. It was not part of their plan for the Messiah. And we see that that the angel and Jesus seem deeply concerned about the disciples in this resurrection account. The angel says, go quickly and tell his disciples. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers and tell them to go to Galilee. There's this desire that these disillusioned, heart-sick disciples would know that Christ is alive. They had a different expectation for the Messiah. A dead Messiah was not part of their plan. They had this vision of a a David-like king that would rise up and and would lead the people of Israel to dominance over Rome, this militaristic, kingly figure. A Messiah that hung on a cross was not what they had in mind when they pledged allegiance to Jesus years earlier. And as Christians today, we, we can find ourselves disillusioned, can't we? I know I've found myself disillusioned in, in my life in following Jesus. I mean, you try to journey through life and you try to, as a follower of Jesus, you try to align your life with the heart of God, the truth of God's word. You try to live as he would have you live, but we know that our ways are not God's ways. And, and sometimes even when we think we're in the center of God's will, life takes a left-hand turn or a right-hand turn and we find ourselves saying, God, what's going on here? Why, why this? The expectation we have for life with Jesus doesn't match the reality and we get disillusioned. Our worldviews don't match up. Our, our life's not as comfortable as we thought it would be. The prayer's not answered how we thought it should be answered. The, I have a hard time loving my neighbor because I don't like my neighbor. Someone I love passes away. The commands of Christ are offensive and difficult. And we can find ourselves disillusioned. And these disciples were disillusioned. This was not what they thought it was going to be. And we see the deep concern in the, in the words of Jesus for those men. And thirdly, we see the Marys, right? We see the, the Marys at the tomb. And it's an incredible story. As we, I sat with the middle schoolers last week. We looked at the resurrection story. And we were, we were studying how the fact that the New Testament authors depict women as the first discoverers of the empty tomb is a really an incredible thing. Because in first century Palestinian Jewish culture, the women were thought much less than they should have been. But they weren't considered viable witnesses in court. And they would not have been a, a good witness to the first to the empty tomb, and the fact that the New Testament authors stuck to their story that women were the first ones to discover the tomb is evidence of the authenticity of the accounts of the resurrection that we find in Scripture. And we see this language of fear and joy and fear and worship in their response to the empty tomb. The angel says to them, do not be afraid. When they leave the tomb, they leave with fear and great joy. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Go to Galilee. We see this picture. It's a picture of reverent worship. Fear and worship is a response that, that anyone would have when they're in the presence or in the midst of something much greater, much more powerful than them. We see this in the Marys. 
We've talked about this previously as a church, but the word worship is two words. It's the word worth and ship together. To worship is to declare the worth of the one being magnified. The one who we worship is the only one worthy of such attention and devotion. And they're worshiping Jesus right there, right then, outside the tomb. And so we see these different responses. And it's good for us to, 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 to settle into this account of the resurrection of Jesus. We see fear and full denial. We see disillusionment. We see reverent worship. And man, I don't think it's that hard for us as Bible readers to just kind of imagine what it would be like for us on that day. How would we respond to that, to that discovery and empty tomb? I mean, there's women traveling with heavy hearts, preparing to, to care for the body of Jesus, but to be met with an angel and an empty tomb and a resurrected Christ. Incredible. As I thought about this, you know, I've preached, someone asked me, how many Easter sermons have you preached? I'd say probably 20 over the years. It's awesome. It's, it's the Super Bowl for the, it's the Super Bowl Sunday for Christians. It's the most significant event in Christendom is the resurrection. It's an awesome, it's an awesome message to preach. But I, I found myself this week just saying, okay, I asked that so what question. And I've asked that question before, but I asked it on behalf of those of us gathered here today. I'm like, you know, we're going to be gathered in the sanctuary. We're going to be looking at Matthew's account of the resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb, the risen Christ. Awesome, incredible. So what? So what does that really mean? Like, what is, what is the real-time, here-and-now implication of this resurrection? How does Christ's resurrection impact or benefit you and me? What does it mean for us? In the midst of Gollum Offrey, a thousand voices, a thousand doors, a thousand truths. In our jumbled and confused and messy world, how does this one event trump all other events? How does this one message rise above all other messages? How does this one truth emerge as the only truth? What realities does the resurrection reveal? I'd like to share a few things, if you don't mind. I'm going to share three things, though there's certainly not an exhaustive list of the implications of the resurrection. I'd like to share three implications. Three realities that the resurrection reveals. Number one, it tells us that Jesus is who he said he was. The resurrection tells us that Jesus is who he said he was. He is the son of God. Said another way, Jesus was and is the one and only son of God and the resurrection proves it. It proves it. Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication in John chapter 10, he's interacting with the, with the folks there and, and Jesus in, in teaching them says, the father and I are one. And so when the people hear that, that's blasphemy in their minds. They pick up stones, they're going to kill Jesus. But Jesus says, hold on. At my Father's direction, I have done many good works. For which one are you going to stone me? But they replied, we're stoning you not for any good works, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. John 10.33, he claimed to be God. And ultimately, as we know, as we recognized on Friday, they did kill him for that. They nailed him to a cross thinking that they would be done with this Jesus. Oh, how wrong were they? Think about that. Those dudes that nailed him to the cross 2,000 years ago, do you think that they would thought on the other side of the world 2,000 years later there would be 500 people gathered in a gymnasium worshiping Jesus? Billions of people across the face of the earth worshiping him? Do you think they thought that as they were nailing him to a cross like some other, one of many rebels who was put to death for daring to rise up against Rome? I don't think so. A mere man does not overcome death. The resurrection verified the divinity of Christ, the fact that he was God. And the interesting thing is when you look at the first century accounts, no one debated that the tomb was empty. Nobody did. In fact, we see in Matthew's gospel, they're, they're coming up with a plan to, 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 to sort of defend and, and, and make excuse for why the tomb was empty. And if I'm Pontius Pilate in the first century, 
and I got two billion or two million Jews in Rome, and there's a fear of an uprising that's going to create much problem with Caesar, and I'm going to try to quell this uprising. When they start saying Jesus is alive, if I had his body, you know what I'm doing as a, as a governor? I'm grabbing his lifeless corpse, I'm dragging it through the streets of Jerusalem, and I'm going to string it up on Temple Mount, and I'm going to say enough of this Jesus talk. Next topic. There was no body. The tomb was empty. All we see in the first century was the tomb was empty. Jesus came back to life. And within a few years of his resurrection, the early church was already crafting a creed or a statement that spoke of the truth of his resurrection. This is before the New Testament was written. I mean, it was 20 plus years after the resurrection of Christ that we start getting the epistles and then the gospels over the next 30 years or so. But before there was any New Testament text, the early church was gathering around the truth of a resurrected Christ and they were creating a creed or statements that that spoke of the truth of what they believed. And the Apostle Paul has preserved for us in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through through 5 or 6 this early church creed that they were repeating within years of the resurrection of Jesus. Do you want to know what the Christians were saying to themselves before they had New Testament scripture? If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3, here's what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. What had been passed on to Paul? This creed. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. He goes on to talk about James seeing Jesus, about, he, about him seeing Jesus. This, this early creed being repeated within years of the resurrection of Jesus, this is a statement of belief for the early church. The resurrection was the centerpiece of their belief and the centerpiece of their hope. In these verses, Paul reveals this creed that, has, that was passed on to them then and us today. And and I had the middle schoolers look at this on Sunday last week. I said, read through this passage and write down the facts. What's the valuable information that this creed reveals for us as we worship Jesus on Resurrection Sunday? Well, it tells us that Jesus died for our sins, as the scripture said. It tells us that Jesus was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter. He was seen by the 12, and at one time he was seen by over 500 people, most of whom were alive at the time that Paul wrote this. So if that wasn't true, if Jesus hasn't been resurrected, those who were there would have said, what are you talking about? He he was dead. Eyewitnesses were alive at the time that Jesus wrote this. This just speaks to the truth of the resurrection. The resurrected Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it also vindicates Jesus. Some people thought that if Jesus died on a cross, he must have done something wrong, right? He was nailed between two other thieves. He probably deserved it. Certainly, there's billions of people who believe that today. Jesus was declared guilty by a Roman court, and the Old Testament talks about how if anyone hangs on a tree, they're under the curse of God. And so, yeah, that's true. However, as it turns out, Jesus didn't die as a damned man because of his own sin, but rather when Jesus hung on the cross, he died for the sins of others. And his sacrifice, by the way, was so pleasing to God that God raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is a form of vindication, not just a a, a verification. It's proof positive that when Jesus said, it is finished with his dying words, God agreed. His father agreed. Everything needed for the salvation of man had been completed and his work was finished. 
The work of redemption had been accomplished. The Father vindicates Jesus through the resurrection, verifying that he was and is the one and only Son of God. Amen. Jesus is who he said he is. He is the Son of God. His resurrection is proof, is proof positive that he is who he said he is. I love what Jesus or what C.S. Lewis says about Jesus in his book, Mere Christianity. It's a very famous quote. I know you've heard it. C.S. Lewis writes, Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut Jesus up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open for us, and he did not intend to. He was and is the Son of God. The fact that Jesus walked out of that tomb alive puts the power of God on full display. This is the gospel. And God alone has the power to bring life from death. God alone has the power to bring light from darkness and beauty from ashes. The Apostle Paul, later on in 1 Corinthians 15, that same famous resurrection chapter, he says, because of the resurrection, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Comes the rhetorical question. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So the first reality that we see in the resurrection is that uh, Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Son of God. The second reality that the resurrection reveals to us this morning is that Jesus did what he said he'd do. He just wasn't who he said he was. Jesus did what he said he'd do, and he reigns victorious today. Said another way, the resurrection defeated sin, defeated death, and defeated the devil. Back in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3, after the fall of man, Satan had, had tempted Adam and Eve, and they had eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Death and sin had entered the world, and God is cursing Satan. And, and you know this story, many of you, as, as, as God is speaking a curse over Satan, in, in Genesis 3.15, he says to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. At the cross of Christ, we see Jesus bruised, but at the resurrection, we see the head of Satan crushed. Amen? So the question is not just why did Jesus have to die, but also why did he have to rise to life? Why is the resurrection necessary for us today as we worship Jesus in this place? Or as one pastor asks, why is the resurrection and not simply the cross alone necessary for the forgiveness of sins? Well, the answer is because without the resurrection, nothing's been conquered. Not sin. Not death, not the devil. Jesus' resurrection from the dead testifies not only that Jesus is the Son of God, but that the offering of his life was an acceptable sacrifice to God. The resurrection is, if the resurrection had not happened, Jesus would be no different than any other religious leader, guru, zealot, any other world religion. Christianity would be just like those other world religions where you can go to the tomb and worship at the tomb of the founder of the faith. As I'm sure you've all heard, religion says do, but the cross and the resurrection of Christ say done. Jesus has done the work necessary. If the resurrection had not happened, the work of salvation would be incomplete. It would be an indication that salvation had not yet been accomplished. At the death of Jesus, God received payment for sins. Your payment and my payment, and then he raised his son to life. And in so doing, he indicated that debt had been paid in full. This is why the resurrection had to happen. It indicates the satisfaction of God's justice, which means that punishment is over. The merit of Christ is proven worthy. Debt has been paid in full. 
death has been vanquished, sin has been atoned for. The resurrection reveals that the work of salvation is done and the death of Jesus was enough. The resurrection reveals that what Jesus has done is enough for all sin, your sin and my sin. It's enough to reconcile all people back to God, you and me as well. It's enough to present you and me holy in God's presence. And it reveals that Jesus won. He's victorious. Sin and death and the devil have been defeated forever. Christ reigns. It reveals that Christ's righteousness is sufficient. I like how Romans puts it. Chapter 4, verse 25. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And we can't separate the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Good Friday and Easter Sunday are a package deal. They go together. They, they're dependent on each other. And I think as we prepare this morning for the baptisms that we're going to see here in a few moments, baptism is a beautiful picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Romans 6, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Yeah, the, the cross and the empty tomb, they reveal that Christ's payment has been accepted and now the victory is ours. I, I, we've been studying Hebrews as a church and we'll be back in Hebrews next week. I love how Hebrews chapter 1 talks about Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says that after making purification for sins that he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. There's this picture of Jesus doing the work necessary for you and I to be for forgiven. He made purification for sins through the cross and through the resurrection. And now he's ascended to the majesty on high where he intercedes on our behalf. He, 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 the, victor, the victorious King Jesus is risen. He's made purification. He now sits on heaven's throne at the right hand of the Father. So we see these first two realities, right? So Jesus, Jesus was who he claimed to be. He, was, he is God, and the resurrection vindicates that or verifies that. Jesus, he, he, he did what he said he'd do. He, he's reigning victorious. And finally, and this is where my thoughts and, and my, my mind has been this week, Jesus will do what he said he'll do. The resurrection reveals that Jesus will do what he said he'll do. And what, what did he say he'll do? Well, he'll renew all things. That's what he said he'll do. Said another way, the resurrection ensures our future glorified body and a glorified world. When you and I come to faith in Christ, there's a present real-time reality that takes place. We go from death to life. We die to self. We're born again into the family of God. We receive new life. We're saved. We're the family of God. We're children of God. It's a real-time present reality that we experience right now, already. But the new life that you and I have already received in Christ here and now is not yet as good as it's going to get. See, the resurrection of Jesus reveals the renewal, the future renewal of all things. The resurrection guarantees our future resurrection as well. A glorious resurrection. And the glorious renewal of our world. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 23 that Christ's resurrection was the first fruits of a resurrection harvest yet to come. And I think about that. That there is a day when this body of death will be replaced with a glorified body. 
And this world that is groaning and, 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 and there's, there's pains like childbirth that afflict this world and we experience it here and now. The Golomophry in our mind is a, is a reflection of living in a broken world and with faulty bodies. We, we, we weep at, at gravesides. We, we, we watch the brokenness of the world roll before our eyes on the news each night and, and we're reminded that there's a day when God sets all things right, that there will be a renewal of all things, glorified body, glorified world. What an amazing hope. I just spent the last four days in Wisconsin with my folks. We, we, we got to sit in their little farmhouse on 10 acres in central Wisconsin and, and uh, just talk, TV off, not a lot of Gullamoffrey, just conversation. And many of you who are a part of Heritage know that my mom has been fighting cancer for many years and, and she's still in that fight and that battle with cancer. And I was out there this last week for the purpose of kind of just hanging out with her when she got a, a scan. She'd finished her radiation and her chemo six weeks ago, and so that first post-treatment scan, she's had many of them, but in this latest round of treatments, that first post-treatment scan is pretty important because you see where the cancer is and how effective was the treatment, and, and her cancer's metastasized, and it's been a tough fight. And, and so she, there's, obviously there's fear at the reality of pending death, and, and we got to talk a lot about those things. I'm grateful for the way... God has really moved and worked in my mother's life as she's fighting this cancer. But, you know, as I was sitting in their home on Friday, Good Friday, preparing to drive down to Milwaukee where I flew out the next day, the very last conversation I had with my mom and my dad was about this. The very last conversation I had with my parents was about this great hope that we have, that Jesus will do what he said he'll do. There will be a day where he will renew all things. And when you're in this body of death and you're fighting cancer, it's demoralizing and it's difficult and it's hard and you're facing death and we've all faced death. We've all, we've all confronted death in our own way, whether the ones we love are in our own lives. But to just focus on this amazing future, glorious hope that we have, that these skin suits aren't the finished product, that there's new bodies and there's a new heaven and a new earth that awaits for those of us that are in Christ. I was reading a blog to my mom or an article on the new heavens and the new earth, and I just want to read this with you because that's the last thing I read my mom before I left. Easter confirms that we have new bodies coming. No one knows exactly what the continuity or discontinuity will be like or how God will gather our molecules from the sea and the ground, but he will put us back together again. In some ways, just like we are, but in all ways, new and better. Therefore, as Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We await the renewal of all things. He will do what he said he will do. All of creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time, Paul writes in Romans 8. And so the resurrection reveals this promised future for all who are in Christ, glorified bodies, glorified world. And then finally, there's this picture that the Apostle John gives us in Revelation 21 that no doubt you've heard. Of that day, that day, that eventual day for everyone who's in Christ when we are resurrected to life and we, we stand in the presence of Jesus. I want to read it to you out of Revelation 21, the first five verses. Here's the, here's the vision that God gives the Apostle John of this future reality. John writes, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down 
out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and he will be with his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And behold, the one who is sitting on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. To be a Christian is not just some life philosophy. It's not just some intellectual assent to a code of moral, a moralistic code. It's not just one option among a thousand others. The message and the hope of our risen Christ isn't just one among a thousand other messages. It's not a message that is to be lost in a sea of Gollumafri. This is the one message, the one truth. This is the one hope. It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that victory has been won. All things are going to be renewed. This message gives us a vision of life and existence beyond this life. This is the future hope of the believer. As one theologian puts it, we should not think that Christianity merely sorts out some problems in our life here. Rather, the ultimate goal is beyond this life. And as we get older, those of us that are older, I guess I'm middle-aged, I feel old, our bones ache, our hair turns gray and falls out, our skin bears the marks of time, our brains slow down, disease sets in, arthritis sets in, and our hearts, I think, is the more that we realize the temporal nature of these bodies, our hearts are conditioned all the more for resurrection existence, which is our future. Our hope is not to live another day. Our ultimate hope is not to live another year, not to live another 10 years, not to live another 50 years. That's not our ultimate hope. Our final and ultimate hope is that day when we stand in the presence of Jesus Christ in the new heavens and in the new earth. We'll have glorified body like the one Christ had, a resurrection body, and then he wipes the tears from our eyes. He reminds us that death will be no more. We're never going to mourn again. We're never going to cry again. We're never going to feel pain again. The old order has passed away, and he makes all things new. Oh, what a glorious promise. And to look my mother in the eyes with stage three cancer, metastasized in her body with one lung, oxygen in her nose. And I say, mom, this is what you hope for. This is what I hope for. This is the destiny for all of us that are in Christ. The ultimate resurrection reality is a full-bodied resurrection existence for you and for me in the new heavens and the new earth, which is the eternal home of righteousness. That's what awaits us, church. And that's when we look at the empty tomb, it's not just a great story to gather every spring. These are the truths that, that, that the resurrection reveals to you and to me. I agree with Lee Strobel who writes, the resurrection is a supreme vindication of Jesus' divine identity and his inspired teaching. The resurrection is the proof of his triumph over sin, over Satan, and over death. It's the foreshadowing of the resurrection of all of his followers. It's the basis of Christian hope. It's the miracle of all miracles. So Jesus is who he claimed to be. Look at the empty tomb today and just tell yourself that. Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is the one and only son of the one and only God. Jesus did what he said he'd do. He, he, he now reigns victorious and he'll do what he says he'll do. He'll renew all things. Oh God. And this is my prayer for us. God, still our hearts in the midst of Golomafri. Silence all other voices today in this place. Shut all other doors, expose all other false truths. 
among the thousands of voices, his is the only voice. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in John 10. My sheep hear my voice, he said, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. Oh, God, give us ears to hear your voice this morning. Among the thousands of doors, he stands at the only door. As Revelation 3 reminds us, behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and be with him. Oh God, give us the vision to go to the one and only door that matters. Among the thousands of truth claims that exist in the world, only he is the truth. Or as Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. So church, here's my prayer for you. Here's my prayer for me on this Resurrection Sunday. Among all of the Golomafri, may you hear the one voice of Jesus. May you open the door to Jesus. May you follow the truth of Jesus. He is the risen Christ, the Son of God. He reigns victorious, and he will one day renew all things. He is risen. He is risen. We pray. As I'm praying, I want to encourage those folks who've already had conversations about baptism. I'm going to pray. I'm going to encourage you as I'm praying to come over and line up along the side of the wall as we're going to prepare for baptisms. Let me pray. Father, I'm so grateful for this opportunity you've given us as a church to gather in this place this morning and to focus our hearts and minds on the truth of the resurrection. You are the risen Christ. You are the Son of God. You reign victorious. And God, we have this great eternal hope that one day you will renew all things, glorified bodies, glorified world. God, I'm so grateful for that truth. God, I pray that it would inform our worship this morning. God, I pray that as we gather over the next few moments and observe baptisms and sing songs and break bread together, God, that that truth, the truth of the resurrection, the truth of our future hope, that it would just, God, it would fill us to the top, just overflowing. God, I'm mindful of men and women here today who are considering your claims. God, I just pray that on this morning as we look to the truth of the resurrection, as we consider the implication or the realities that the resurrection reveals, God, would you, by your spirit, God, would you soften hearts and loosen up ears and open eyes to, to, to respond and see and hear the truth of who you are. God, would you help us to, to listen to the one voice that we need to listen to, to open the one door, to... to God, to respond to the one truth that you represent, Jesus. God, give us faith and God, put confession on our lips that we would confess that you, Jesus, are Lord and believe in our hearts that you have been raised from the dead. And say, pray, God, that, that you would just draw people to yourself this morning. Be glorified in this place. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.